there's some very practical ways people are putting to the test the idea of what innovation is and what it should look like. And I think at the heart of why fintech is a big deal right now, relative to a lot of other buzz phrases within global startup ecosystems, there's the, the clearest line between advancing wholesale economic success and this idea that Africa can do it. I think there's a straightest line between fintech and those notions than there is between, say, drones that deliver medicine. Today, I am joined by a fellow podcaster covering tech uh, in emerging and frontier markets. And Delia Masuku is the host of African Tech Roundup. He is one of the foremost resources for the African tech community on the state of the ecosystem, what's happening across the region. And we have the pleasure today to have him remotely joining. And Delay, thank you so much for joining on this beautiful Sunday in DC. Uh, what's, what, what's the weather like in London right now? I'm in Sheffield at the moment, and uh, it's pretty nice. You can tell, like, winter's giving way to spring. It's never as clear-cut as that in the UK, of course, <laughs> because it's pretty much winter lurking behind every summer day over here. But it's a lovely day over here, and I'm really quite pleased to be on your podcast, Andrew. Thanks for the invite. No problem. It's supposed to be winter here in D.C., and yet, you know, we're having these 55, 60-degree Fahrenheit days which, you know, is, is, is fantastic, but it's certainly not normal. Yeah, yeah. Of course, global warming is not happening. Not a thing at all. Don't be ridiculous. <sighs> Something's happening. Something's happening, whatever <laughs> it is. <laughs> whatever it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, um, it's a pretty day. I'm going to, I look forward to taking a walk outside as soon as we are done before I throw myself back into the desktop work I still have uh, piled up and needing to get done. Yes, of course. So, you know, I feel like it's my responsibility as the host of this podcast to really be in tune with, with what's happening with some of the other popular podcasts covering the space, mm. uh, you know, what, what they're talking about. And, you know, I've been listening to African Tech Roundup a lot recently. And I really want to dive into some of the different topics that, that you've been discussing. Um, you know, I know for me covering Africa, it, it really feels like I've, I've been a little bit too fintech heavy. And that is such a big piece of, uh, of the overall picture and what's happening in the ecosystem and especially what's getting funded uh, by outside VCs coming in. But, you know, one of the episodes that I came across recently that I found fascinating and insight gap I have on my end, I, I would say is certainly the North Africa, Middle East region and, and, and what's happening there, especially in the realm of, of Islamic finance. So I came across one of your recent episodes with Dr. Salam Saeed of, I believe, the University of Bremen. Yeah, well, she consults to a number of universities at this point, so she's a freelancer. But yeah, a, a lot of her work has been done with the University of Bremen in, in Germany. Yeah, I would really like to start off there, like uh, you know, unpacking Arab identity, socioeconomics dynamics in the region. With the conversations you're having on the Middle East, you know, what would you say are some of the big parallels that you're seeing across that region that, that is also playing out with, with, within the African ecosystem as well? Because I know North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa are essentially two different worlds. Yeah, and that's what I have to be humble to even in joining you on this discussion is that why I was really delighted to have Dr. Saeed on the show is because those worlds typically don't interact to the extent to which people might imagine they do, given their ge geographic proximity. There's this notion of Arab identity, which in many ways is stronger than the imaginary of African identity or Pan-African identity 
whatever that means, you know, because again, that means so many different things to so many different people. But I, for the purpose of this discussion, this idea that you could technically be a country that is part of the African continent in the northern part of or on the other side of the Sahara and technically not really identify with or even be actively involved with commercially everything else that's going on in sub-Saharan Africa, which is for the most part the reality of countries like Morocco and Egypt and Algeria and, and Tunisia. Uh, these are countries that, for the most part, have far more in common with Middle Eastern countries culturally and otherwise than they do with their neighbors on the African continent. And that creates a really interesting dynamic as the notion for framing what Africa is going to be and do as we make our way in this fourth industrial revolution. And it's as much a political or socio-economic question as it is genuinely a question of people think differently. Their cultural norms around framing ideas like innovation and what that should look like and economic progress and what that should look like at grassroots level, at a corporate level, what startups in largely conservative Muslim-led society might look like relative to maybe a more secular, multifaceted cultural dynamic that you find in a place like South Africa, for example. It's been an interesting immersion in those dynamics of late, having experts from North Africa, the Middle East, fragile regions of Africa like South Sudan, frontier or emerging markets that have, have a recent sort of fragile history like Rwanda and, and starting to see like, you know, I mean, again, this whole notion of Africa being one big place or being one country constantly being debunked, even by someone like me who totally understands how stupid it would be to, to think of Africa as one big place. I'm constantly humbled to what there is to learn and understand. Right. That brings to question, you know, the challenges that are faced by something like, you know, forming an African Union, because I think Africa is, is probably one of the most diverse regions in the world, much more diverse than the European Union. And I think there's going to be a lot of ironing out the kinks in the early days of, of figuring out what this free trade area actually looks like. Because at the end of the day, you know, some of these countries' largest exports, like they're exporting to Europe and the US. They're not like Ghana is not going to sell Nigeria cocoa, right? So I think there needs to be a lot of focus on the fourth industrial revolution and kind of emerging technologies, internet of things, blockchain, connected vehicles, like a, a focus on those areas. When, when, when it comes to this North Africa region, are you finding that fintech right now is, is kind of the bulk of the narrative like the rest of the content? Or are there you know other things because of the concept of Sharia-compliant fintech and, and Islamic banking that is, is different? I mean, I have to say this. I'm encouraged by like the level of pragmatism around the socioeconomic foundations for a lot of these conversations. It's becoming quite clear to a lot of people. The, the pragmatic notion of what's going to be good ultimately for our people. And I'm using our people to denote how governments think of their citizens our people to denote how regional policymakers think of their constituents, our people denoting perhaps global policymakers thinking about the world at large. And then at the grassroots level, there's someone who's just literally trying to make sure they have school fees for their children, enough sort of pipeline resources to ensure they can get to and from work. 
uh, get paid, save up for marriage, save up for, for university and set their kids up for global sort of citizen success. I think the pragmatic anchor for a lot of those discussions, I'm, I'm happy to say these days, is, is a lot less pie in the sky than it used to be like maybe three or four or five years ago, seven years ago, when it was this whole idea of Africa rising. Right. People are, I think, a little more attuned to, you know, what's the implication of this development? You know, what will this new app do for me? What's really in it for me if I download this application? Or, you know, how can WhatsApp actually improve my chances of getting into a university and studying medicine? There's some very practical ways people are putting to the test the idea of what innovation is and what it should look like. And I think at the heart of why fintech is the, a big deal right now Relative to a lot of other buzz phrases within global startup ecosystems, there's the, the clearest line between advancing wholesale economic success and this idea that Africa can do it. I think there's a straightest line between those two things, fintech and those notions, than there is between, say, drones that deliver medicine remotely to you know remote parts of Mozambique. Yeah. So I think for that reason, and also, I mean, People are constantly trying to make the argument for VC a la Silicon Valley can work in Africa. There's that problematic notion, which many people might know um, that annoys me a great deal because I don't entirely buy into that version of VC and its applicability in Africa. But there are people who are intent on trying to make a go of, hey, what's working in, in East Southeast Asia? What's happening in India and China? What's happening in the US? You know, as far as being able to invest early and like cash out with like outsized returns on investment. Well, that's possible in Africa. And I, and I buy into that to some extent. I think there's a desire for that case to be made in a very short period of time as quickly as possible. And for a lot of people, fintech is a proxy for those things, even in North Africa, where granted the dynamics might be different, but there's a reason, for example, the mobility trend in North Africa and the Middle East is probably as big as it is in other parts of sub-Saharan Africa and indeed elsewhere in the world. Because again, for the most part, it's a proxy for the ultimate sort of data-led fintech play. And so there are similarities, but the pragmatic true north is we're looking for the thing that will deliver in pragmatic, practical terms and not just the thing that sounds nice to say because Africa is this new frontier. So we did an episode with Aubrey Ruby a few weeks ago, and she she really has this kind of new thesis that Africa's venture space needs to look to India as a much better model to learn from than the Silicon Valley model. Because you're right, the Silicon Valley model, you can't just copy and paste that into Africa. It's such a different ecosystem. I mean, particularly like if, if you have a fund with a 10-year horizon, a 10-year life cycle is not a, long enough. To, to actually run a fund in Africa because the nuances of the market, the B2B sales cycles, like it doesn't translate at all from, from the Western world. So, you know, more humbleness from VCs entering the market is a must. But what you were saying before, I think that the term necessity is the mother of innovation gets thrown out a lot in an African context. And I think it's very true. And a lot of technologies in the fourth industrial revolution, particularly on the hardware intensive side, can be pioneered in an African context, especially if you look at something like a gearbox in Nairobi, uh, which is like a, one of the leading hardware accelerators kind of affiliated with the iHub and that whole ecosystem. But there are a lot of different startups that are emerging from there 
that are able to essentially be the entry point into Africa and the Middle East for Western companies coming in because there are so many nuances of building hardware for a market like Nairobi that you wouldn't really find as necessary in the US. And so I think that means that the Africa Union, all the efforts that are being led on that front, there needs to be a significant conversation and focus on what does a pan-Africa digital framework look like for standards, for digital currency laws, for how do you protect and kind of create more collaboration amongst different African countries for IP, yeah. IP that frankly can, can be developed and discovered in Africa and exported to the rest of the world. I like how you're thinking about that because I think there is a distinction between the potential for thinking in pan-African terms around policymaking, around mining for synergies at a sort of policy level, at a sort of trade enablement standpoint. But there is a distinction between that and the pragmatic case that is being made by hundreds of startups today, which is, you know, Africa's the next big thing because X, Y, Z, 10X potential. And and I think there's often a conflation of those two things. And what I like about the Indian experience, which you've referenced, I mean, we recently had an Indian tech founder named Arunjay Katakam. He's London-based, um, but he's done the rounds. He's, you know, he's a former EY consultant, co-founded three startups, has exited two. One of them eventually sold to Twitter. And, and so he's working on a cross-border remittance startup called Use, and he advises founders at DFS Lab. And we had him on our show and he, you know, his insights into what we can borrow from India as what certain key markets can borrow from India. And by key markets on the African continent, I'm talking about the headline markets that make the headlines frequently. And for good reason. I mean, they often have the largest populations. They most have often the most advanced early adoption ecosystems or for digital technologies, for industrial revolution tech, things of that nature. And so I'm talking Nigeria, you know, Kenya, South Africa, Ethiopia, to the lesser degree, perhaps Rwanda, Egypt, certainly. And so what was interesting is how he pointed out how in India, there's a lot less oversimplification as far as the ecosystem's understanding of the various elements that make the ecosystem work or that have come together to set up the success of what is today one of the world's fastest growing e-commerce businesses or what is today like an unprecedented use of of mobile technology and and data use for commercial use. So you're seeing in India like wholesale change in usage habits around how people think of their smartphones and what it can do and what they're using them to do and demand of them. And and what's really nice is to observe really that Indian ecosystem, they're very self-aware about the role of, say, government and the role of, say, policymaking, the role of, say, mafias that have formed around like early successes, you know, similar to the PayPal mafia in the US. And they're, you know, self-aware about the role of certain disruptive influences within mobile telephony that brought down the price of, of data and uh, changed the sort of competitive landscape that made way for people to start to use their smartphones more and, and start to use them to do business and bank themselves and do all these interesting things, which frankly, we want to see happen in Africa and in certain markets. But without us sort of being clear about all the factors that play into what sets up India to be what it is in 2020. We're not doing ourselves any favors by, for example, claiming mobility as the next big thing in Africa or as this big potentially pan-African play or super app potential without properly understanding the 
often complex interplay between, you know, the politics, the socioeconomics, culture, the resource flows that characterize various markets on the continent. Yeah, my, my biggest fear is that Africa follows some of the mistakes that India has made in terms of the VC ecosystem being very top heavy. If you, if you look at companies like Flipkart, Oyo, there's a surprisingly small number of Indian tech companies that are attracting vast majority of, of venture capital. I mean, it's really the Pareto principle to its fullest extent. And so that, that certainly is a fear that I have. Some people would argue, Andrew, though, that isn't that true in the US as well? I mean, in terms of like the spread of resources and I suppose the effective leveraging of quasi monopolistic opportunities and advantages, you know, I think Facebook and I think, well, that's kind of mostly one guy. <laughs> well, that's true. But fa- I mean, Facebook isn't necessarily the case of like all VC, you know, being pumped into this one company to grow it. It was more like they established their place in the market. And Zuckerberg is just a, a killer in terms of, you know, being a fantastic operator. Fair enough. And so, you know, I, I think it's true to a much lesser extent in, in Silicon Valley. I mean, you know, there, there's a difference in cornering a market from an operator perspective and cornering raising venture capital. Is there danger of certain players sucking the oxygen out of the ecosystem for smaller innovators? Something that, say, Safaricom and, I suppose, by extension, Vodafone has been accused of doing in Kenya. And, you know, Econet in Zimbabwe, companies like them and Enscore in Zimbabwe being accused of doing so in that ecosystem. And, you know, my co-host on the show, also Ruman Osamui, I think he's sufficiently swayed me on this. I mean, I felt very strongly about this some months ago. But I think there's a sort of, you know, tide raising effect that's on the go here that has kept me from properly buying into that worry right now. For starters, I mean, we're truly at a nascent stage. The markets are so large, the untapped opportunity so large and so daunting that even the likes of like Google and, and Facebook take pause when they think about the quote African opportunity. What has happened over the last five years, I think there's been an equal opportunity humbling of various players in the ecosystem, whether we're talking the incumbent financial institutions, whether we're talking mobile telcos, whether we're talking big players like Google or Facebook and Uber even, or, you know, startups that are backed by big name brands like Opera and, and Toyota in Nigeria. We're seeing it in, in the mobility space. Every, you know, quarter or so, there's a, there's a huge humbling effect <laughs> that takes place or a huge humbling signal that that registers that reminds us that this is not a simple matter of like just deploy the resources get some smart people deploy them pay them a lot of money and the problems will fall one after the other in, in neat in neat order yeah and i think there's an equal opportunity vibe to that reality right now and granted the bigger you are the, the more of that pain you can sustain for longer but i'd hazard right now it's as hard a time to be big and trying to do something ambitious on the african continent as it is potentially to be small and trying to do the same yeah i think that's right and, and i also don't think it's black and white yeah i think it's important to have big players like a safaricom because you need someone who's going to be doing the acquiring. You need liquidity in the market. There's no sophisticated public market liquidity in most African markets that would provide a proper IPO environment for a startup to actually scale up and then you know have a successful IPO on the continent. 
This is true. But I mean, aren't you assuming that um, the idealized norm would be, again, like this massive pipeline of like exit potential and a, a version of what we're seeing in, in, in more mature markets like the US? Well, you need liquidity in the market because that recycles that recycles the capital and, and, and keeps it flowing. So like, you know, what, what happens in most ecosystems in the world that are successful, like I always look at Estonia as, as such a such an interesting case study on how to cultivate a thriving startup ecosystem. You know, the, the original founders of Skype had this huge exit to Microsoft in the early 2000s. And all of that capital, all of those ex-employees and ex-founders were really recycled back into the ecosystem and produced the second wave of all these amazing startups, you know, like Bolt, right? Bolt is founded by two brothers, one really young guy, uh, I think it's like 23 who's running it, but a lot of ex Skype resources and mentorship and capital was, was put into that. And so it's so important to have liquidity in the ecosystem that can only be possible if there's a good IPO opportunities or if there's a larger corporate like a Safaricom, like an Econet, like I think the banks need to be doing more acquiring mm-hmm. because what happens is this leads to my other theory that the more nationalistic countries are more likely to have a thriving ecosystem because there's a sense of self-sacrifice for the larger ecosystem in those countries. And that is the kind of attitude that's required in order to kind of reinvest back into the ecosystem. So the other narrative that's playing out that's, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if you're having the conversations, but I'm, on my end, I know it's a very hot topic in kind of the DC political ecosystem. It's, it's, it's the decisions that African leaders are making right now when it comes to ICT infrastructure. And that decision is open source versus closed, closed source. The U.S. is pushing a much more open source approach, whereas you have Huawei coming in and offering yeah. these, these... I don't remember IBM and Cisco and Microsoft like pushing that agenda like 10 years ago. Just saying. I mean, look, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I am biased because of where I sit, obviously as we all are. But at the <laughs> same course. time, I wouldn't trust Huawei in, in coming in and implementing ICT infrastructure into the country because we all know that there's there's state influence on Huawei, just like there is on a lot of the large Chinese companies. There's something you said earlier about liquidity. And I, I mean, theoretically, and I don't disagree with anything you've said, except I am fundamentally opposed to the doctrine of VC that basically allows value to be captured without actual value being created. And what I mean by that is there's definitely a a template for being able to enthuse a market in the potential of any idea. Uh, That idea doesn't necessarily have to be bad or totally sort of unbankable. But in many cases, as you know, history will attest, many a bad idea have been backed to the detriment of many, but to the success of those who took a bet early and because the system permitted it, were able to exit successfully, right? And so that's what sort of liquidity permits alongside doing amazing things like you described, which is to create or engender an ecosystem of generational innovation subsequent to, you know, initial successes and things like that. So I suppose that's the kind of thing I'm wary of. On one hand, I'd like to see just as many transactions happen as much business get done on the African continent as we see done in the US, Europe, or, you know, in parts of Asia and even South America. 
But on the other hand, I'm quite encouraged by a lot of policymakers I'm interacting with these days who see that the speed some would like to see in our ecosystems, as far as these things are concerned, could actually be an advantage for us in as far as thoughtfully thinking about what kind of market success we want to see, like what sort of policy might sustain long-term, slow-drip sort of commercial success for our markets, you know, relative to this desperation to sort of speed to success and capture value quickly and, and, and get it in and out as fast as possible. And I understand that we can't totally be in a bubble about this because, yeah, you know, the rest of the world carries on at a breakneck pace. But the truth is Africa has proven time and time again that she will do what she will do when she will do it. And granted, there are some advantages that get lost when the pace isn't what it should be. But I think by and large, that slowness is, is an asset given the times we're living in and uh, the precarious nature of the global economy currently. So that's the one side of what I've had to say. What do you reckon? I mean, you look at somewhere like Ethiopia. I mean, they've been a very closed off market in terms of, I mean, providing fintech companies, banking licenses, privatizing a lot of state assets. And they're now just kind of opening up. And like you said, there's, there's pros and cons to that. Excellent example, though, because that's a slow burn. That's partnering with firms like ZTE early on when toast of the time would have been, you know, folks like Siemens and things of that nature. You know, the idea in, in Ethiopia was, you know, let's make our friends, let's make tight friends, let's grow with our friends, let's take our time with our growth. We understand that there's a tax on that decision because we obviously aren't going to have the whizziest internet speeds. We're not going to have the most reliable mobile telco infrastructure. You know, and I'm talking about Ethiopia five, ten years ago. If we're going to keep this government-owned monopoly on mobile telephony, there's there's obviously things that aren't going to grow as fast or innovation that we can expect to see, you know, happen as fast as possible. But I think a lot of economists, or you know, certainly analysts who have observed Ethiopia, including some we've had on our show, would agree with you that it's hard to, to fault the results of that strategy, at least, you know, in the short to medium term. Perhaps in time, you know, history will attest to the mistake they made. But for the moment, it's like, look, taking it low and slow, not, you know, feeling an undue sense of anxiety about how fast things need to happen, how big deals need to be in order to justify their global importance or, you know, in order to keep up with the Joneses of the rest of the world. You know, there's something about Africa's opportunity to sort of just set its own pace at the moment that I, I quite like and I don't think should be entirely ditched in favor of like a ton of money flooding the system with a gung-ho attitude of let's make things and let's break things, you know? Yeah. I mean, look, if you, if you just, from a pure number standpoint, look at, Ethiopia's consistent GDP growth. If you look at the current interest right now in terms of the FDI flows into the country, it's hard to argue that they're, they're not doing something right. <laughs> yeah. My intuition and my sense really tells me that like this might be the most important decade that we've ever seen in our lifetime. Maybe, you know, in, in the course of modern history, this is how we implement these technologies that are now kind of hitting that hockey stick portion of the exponent curve, how we deal with some of the populism and some of the the fracture of our institutions in the West, particularly that are that are cracking now. Mm. Africa is in a position to really lead. And I think now more than ever, Africa needs its diaspora. It needs its diaspora to come home 
to start businesses, to lead. And, you know, I think that what most African countries are missing right now are what the U.S. had in its early days, which made it develop in a, in a much faster way, which is economic strength and private sector influence that can provide friction to the government. And that friction is missing in, in a lot of African markets where you have these politically run businesses, you have this kind of public sector that controls most of the economy. And you don't have, you know, like the US had back in the day, you know, obviously there was there was still corruption on our end back in the day, but you had the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Vanderbilts that were able to kind of create this friction with the government here. And and in, in that friction is how regulation, proper regulation develops. It's how private markets develop. 